Welcome to the Art of Dynamic Competence. I'm Susan Clark. Join me for a podcast where we explore how to best align ourselves with whatever situation we find ourselves in, allowing us to create success in changing times. Today, we're talking with Ted Powell, a managing partner at Stop at Nothing Business Consultants since 1995. Prior to that, he had a 14-year career in marketing with American Express and AT&T. Ted takes a very personal approach to his consulting, working with his clients at both the interpersonal as well as the intrapersonal levels. Ted is a great writer and has some interesting blogs posted on his website. He is also an experienced speaker, challenging business leaders to conquer their fear of the unknown so they can tap into new innovative solutions. Ted presented a TEDx talk titled, When Your Mind Works Against You, and has received over 400,000 downloads. If you want to check it out, we've linked Ted's TEDx talk to his podcast page on our dynamiccompetence.com website. In this current podcast, we'll explore elements to successful change from Ted's experience and wisdom. Tom and I will then use our dynamic competence perspectives to dive deeper into Ted's excellent work. Well, Ted, welcome to the Art of Dynamic Competence. Thank you, Susan. It's great to be here. Glad to have you. You've had a successful consulting business for quite a while. How did you get into this? Well, it's interesting because prior to this consulting practice that I've been part of for the last 26 years, I actually had a 14-year career working in the credit card business for AT&T and American Express. I never envisioned that I would be doing this kind of work. But a series of experiences led me to this, which I'll get to in a moment. But if you go back farther than that, the interesting thing is that if I look at what I was really interested in in college, Mm -hmm. it was sociology and psychology. And that's what my heart was saying. But my head was saying, you can't major in those things because you're not going to be able to earn a living. And the left side of my brain was saying, therefore, you need to major in economics, which I ended up doing and then getting into uh, marketing and, and business But then 14 years later, I fell into a career that actually marries and merges human psychology with business. Mm -hmm. So for me, I was able to experience the best of two things that I really love and appreciate. Oh, wonderful. And do you mind talking a bit about how that transition happened? You know, what was the shift for you as it began to change? Yeah, there were a couple of things that happened. One was I was promoted into a a VP-level job where I had significant leadership and management responsibility and very little training and experience. Mm -hmm. So I found myself a bit in over my head. And then also working for AT&T, Universal Card at that time, we were really challenged with a lot of interpersonal dynamics that were strained. We had a parent company and a lot of people there that uh, were a bit resentful of... uh, some of us that were coming in from the credit card industry. So there was a lot of us versus them dynamics within the organization. And then to add to that, on the personal side, I had just gotten married. And in a five-year period, my wife and I created three children. So I had a lot of life change <laughs> hitting me very quickly. Yes. And a very low level of uh, awareness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so I started to experience um, a lot of stress. Fortunately, I was able to meet some people in my life who could help me reframe all of that and understand that uh, stress is all about how we choose, consciously or unconsciously, to experience our life circumstances right. rather than the circumstance itself. Correct. Well, I was really interested 
in the organization that you've been working with and how you organize into kind of three levels of organizational dynamics. And I wondered if you would mind talking a little bit about those three different levels and how you see them working. Yeah, so the three levels are the, the systemic, the interpersonal, and the intrapersonal. Right. Now, the systemic has to do with the processes, how we're organized, what roles and responsibilities are, how we measure success, business metrics, financial plans, strategic plans, that sort of thing. The interpersonal is really the culture, and that's uh, as defined by the patterns of behavior that if you were observing uh, an organization, you would notice uh, between people, mm -hmm. whether it's a highly collaborative culture or a siloed culture, whether it's a culture where there's a lot of fear in place or whether or not people feel free to speak their mind. And I could go on and on uh, as it relates to that. But that's really the culture. And then we have the intrapersonal. Now, the intrapersonal is the individual. And each individual in the organization brings their whole set of personality preferences, belief systems, fears, hopes, desires. And what we found is to create the most effective organization, you actually have to be looking at and evaluating each one of those. Correct. They're related to each other, but you have to look at them separately. And it's really easy and comfortable for us, or more easy and comfortable for us, to flock to the system if something isn't working well and saying, well, the system must not be functioning well or the systemic, so let's create a new process as opposed to saying, is it really an issue with the process or is it the culture and the people that may be unconsciously undermining the process? And we help give people the tools to be able to see all of these different things so that they can find the correct root cause of whatever the challenge or opportunity they have and, and focus on fixing that rather than fixing the wrong thing. Right. And you mentioned that it's about people spend about 90% of their time focused on the systemic issues, the process issues that are in place, correct? That, that's right. Although I'll have to say that um, that has changed over the years, and, and I think that's good and positive. The 90% was probably uh, a little bit more valid back 20 years ago. I think that what's happened now is that more and more organizations have become aware that culture matters, and at the end of the day, that's a big differentiator. There's definitely a higher level of holding leaders accountable for their behavior, and the culture they're creating than there were when I was growing up in the business world in the 1980s. Um, sure, sure. We are seeing a shift, and that's been very gratifying to us because that's typically when we get called in is when people need help with all three of those levels. We don't really do the process work. We do the culture work. Sure. And as you deal with this culture work in this interpersonal space, they clearly know there's a problem. They've called you in. They've called you in because they know it's more than just process. How do you help them see what the underlining cultural issues are? So first, it's, it's very, very important that I and, and me and my business partners establish a, a trusting relationship up front, because typically at some point we're going to have to deliver some news and information that they may not want to hear. Mm -hmm. And if they don't trust our motives, if they don't uh, trust that we are there to help them be successful then it's going to be difficult for us to d deliver that. The next thing, which is somewhat related to that, is to help people get beyond the ego. And the ego says, uh, I need to project an image of perfection or an image that I've got it all figured out. I can't be vulnerable and admit maybe that I don't know something 
or that I have made a mistake. So we have to figure out a way to give people tools to break that down. That's number two. And then number three, when the table has been set in that way, then we go and we talk to employees and we have a data collection process that we use to bring information to the leaders in a very thorough and descriptive way, which can sometimes be hard-hitting and uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's very liberating because now they have the information they need so that they can make whatever improved choices they need to make as a leader in an organization. And then we help them once we've provided them with that information with here's some ideas and some things that we have seen work in terms of how to make some of those changes. So those are really the steps that we use to create the kind of results that we like to see. Great. And how often do organizations that you work with show an interest in moving beyond the interpersonal to the intrapersonal, to that third level that you have? Well, that, that's, that's a really good question, and that's changed a bit as well. Today, the intrapersonal, uh, you can look at it in two ways uh, that organizations look at it. One of them is making sure that my employees have the tools that they need to take personal responsibility for their role within the organization, including if there's a lot of change going on in the organization, taking personal responsibilities for leading themselves through that in an effective way versus sabotaging it out of fear. Mm-hmm. So that's one angle. But the other angle is just health and wellness. So we have a lot of clients that are just hiring us and saying, you know what, I want you to take this entire team through our four-day self-awareness program just so that they will be happier, healthier human beings. And a lot of what we get into is providing people with tools for how to better manage their relationships in their personal life, whether it's with their partner, wife, husband, spouse, whether it's with their kids, whether it's with their aging parents. So a lot of clients are taking an interest in providing their employees with those kinds of tools, realizing that if they're happier and healthier in their personal life, they will bring that to work and vice versa. Sure. I think everyone's seen that, uh, the difference it makes when you have a group of people who are feeling balanced and have uh, the ability to, to focus on other things and work when they need to. And it makes a huge difference. And I think it's being encouraged more and more. And as we come out of COVID, I think it's also going to be more of a demand. I mean, we've survived yeah. a lot of juggling over the last year or so. No, that's a good point. And I think a lot of people have learned a lot of those kinds of things during the COVID era that will create a shift sure. in um, how companies function. Well, I was also interested in how you really help organizations deal with change. And I noticed on your website that you have four stages of organizational change that you talk about, you were blogging about. Would you like to talk about those four stages? Because I think it's a nice overlay on this basic organizational structure you have, a systemic, interpersonal, and intrapersonal. Then when you look at change happening where you start with denial, there's an emotional component, there's acceptance, and then ultimately commitment. Would you like to walk our listeners through that? Because I think it's a nice description of how change actually happens at the personal level that creates organizational change. Right. So the tool that you're talking about is probably one of our most popular. I do a lot of keynote speaking at conferences, and I have a a list of uh, (laughs) topics that I present the organizer, and 75% of the time they choose change. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons is, is because this particular tool really gives people an ability to understand the human side of change. It helps us to understand and anticipate some of the obstacles that can come up 
particularly related to the interpersonal and the intrapersonal that we talked about a little bit earlier. And it also just gives people comfort that, hey, you know what? When we're in the most challenging stage of change, which is the emotional quadrant, that I know that that's, it's normal and natural to have these kinds of emotional experiences. And being able to um, understand that means that people will be more able to recognize, honor them, let go of them, and then move forward. It's when we aren't paying attention to them and we stay stuck in them and we don't know that we're stuck in them that we run into problems. Right. So the four stages of change are denial, first, emotional, second, hopeful acceptance, third, and then commitment is the fourth. And, you know, we like to say that uh, you need to anticipate that there's going to be a dip. I call it anticipating the dip. That's a dip in morale and productivity. And so you don't want to avoid and resist that reality. But what you do want to do is be prepared to do certain things to get people through that emotional quadrant as quickly and gracefully as possible. Can we talk about the denial first? I'm fascinated by the denial piece as a starting point. Right. And well, so the denial is part of our instinctive, basic human nature, deny the need to change. And it has to do with the fact that change brings about discomfort. It brings back a a certain amount of emotional pain. We as human beings are wired to move towards pleasure and away from pain. And uh, so that's one of the reasons why there can be a knee-jerk reaction to resist it. And what I like to tell people is you need to be honest with yourself and asking, are you resisting this change because you are in a mindset of being a healthy skeptic, or are you being a cynic? Hmm. And I find that helps people. And then we'll define what a healthy skeptic mindset is like, experiencing it inside yourself, and then what a cynical mindset is like, experiencing it inside yourself. If we do that, then hopefully people will still be able to challenge the change, because you do. I mean, you you know, you want to have an environment where people are collaborative and they're challenging and they're going, well, I'm not so sure about this, but you just want them to be doing it for the right reasons. And as part of that denial phase, getting them to understand that they have uh, preconceived unconscious assumptions about the situation that they're unaware of? Is that a bit of what you're doing is raising the awareness of what their assumptions are? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, a number of years ago, I worked with two companies that were emerging together. One of them had been around for a long time, and they were very process-oriented, and the other one was very, very entrepreneurial. So if you were to dig into it deeper, one had a bias towards, we've got to put together a process and bureaucracy and rules for everything, and then the other one would say, we don't want to be bound by any rules. Right. You can imagine how difficult it was for them to come together <laughs> and agree on a, a particular a decision or process, so I had to help them understand that they each, based on their past experience— And what they knew was successful for them, we're going to need to check those biases and be aware of them because what they were trying to co-create together, neither one of those two groups had ever been there before. And to be able to use your experience in a healthy way, but not be attached to it Mm -hmm. in a way that's no longer relevant for the current situation. Right. So you've gone through this awareness generation and at that point, you've been able to kind of address some of these emotional issues that are arising because of this conflict that's there. And you're working with them to begin to understand that that's okay, that's part of the process. And you're getting them now to begin to move through the next phase. So they're using those emotions as kind of the cue. And now you're moving them into this more acceptance phase. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. And what does that acceptance look like? 
Well, the acceptance phase is one, I, I like to describe it as cautious optimism. It's not like commitment where you're, you're able to clearly uh, go and spike the ball in the end zone and say, yes, we made it, we did it. There's still a little bit of uneasiness, and you can actually backslide a little bit. I mean, there could be, you know, a mistake or a setback that comes up that causes people to backslide. But you're having a few more good days than bad days. And when mm-hmm. I say that is bad days would just be where the new system, the process, the change still seems to be faltering more than it's succeeding. So there might be a feeling of frustration. Yeah. And what I notice is that most of the employees are coming to the table with solutions to the problems rather than just complaining about the problems and saying things like, I can't believe they did that, you know, blaming whoever engineered the change. And so there are a number of different little shifts that you start to see like that. And then for the leader, it's a little bit easier because he or she is not having to apply as much energy because people are now kind of leading or propelling themselves through the change Mm -hmm. because they own it themselves. Right. So you see ownership. Do you see more ownership amongst everybody in that point of acceptance? Not necessarily. Everybody individually goes through this process differently. And you're going to have some people that just are a little bit more flexible and adaptable to change by nature, and they're going to be your leaders. And then you're going to have people in the middle. And then you're going to have those people who choose to stay camped out in quadrant two. (laughs) Mm-hmm. in the emotional quadrant, despite all of your best efforts. We call those the uh, chronic BMWs. BMW is not an automobile club. It stands for bitchers, moaners, and whiners. And, and during the emotional <laughs> quadrant, the BMW club tends to grow and swell in its ranks. And once you start to move people out of that, you're still going to have people lingering. And that's when we have to help leaders provide them with the tough love message right. that sounds like, Perhaps, given where the organization is going, this is no longer the place that is going to fit with your desires. And so it's no longer a win-win for you to be here right? and to be able to make those choices. And we found in a lot of the work that we're doing is when we use tools that get at how people's thinking is different or how we're embedded in hierarchies, that we have these unconscious assumptions, sometimes that helps those BMWs begin to see what's keeping them there in a kind of a logical framework, that tends to pick up a few more of those. Do you find that in your work? Absolutely. There is nothing more gratifying to me than being able to present some of those tools that you alluded to and and described in a group environment to give people the time to reflect and then to have somebody or a group of individuals saying, I want to let you know that I've been the chairman or the chairwoman of the BMW club, and I resign (laughs) effective immediately. (laughs) And if anyone sees me trying to reorganize the gang, (laughs) I want you to come slap me upside of the head and say, uh, don't do that, you know, don't go back there. And seeing those kinds of shifts is incredibly rewarding. And Susan, not just from the standpoint of the organization, But typically, if someone is acting out of that victim mode in their professional life, it's also showing up in their personal life. Of course. I've actually had family members who have reached out to me, said, I don't know what you all did, (laughs) (laughs) but so-and-so is a much better person. They're they're more positive, they're happier, (laughs) and thank you. Great, Ted. 
That's good. That's really good. You do this wonderful dynamic work at the individual level and the group during this acceptance phase where people start to see their differences and begin to see that something else is possible. Not everybody at the same time, but it's moving in that direction. The leaders are happy because it's not quite so hard as it was before. And then you move into this fourth phase, this commitment phase. How do you help people move to that phase? Because that's a critical phase, right? You can get everyone to accept things and move forward, but you don't get much accomplished. So let's talk about this commitment phase. That's an interesting question because the commitment phase, I totally agree, is incredibly important for a number of reasons. One of them is it feeds our human spirit. Mm. It feeds our courage. It feeds our resiliency, all of those kinds of things. Because anytime we go through a difficult life challenge, I know this is applied to me and, and most people that I've talked to would agree with this. Even though it was difficult, you're fundamentally different once you come out the other end. Mm-hmm. You're stronger, you have more confidence in yourself. And then if you do it together with a team, as you know, it can be a very um, bonding and fulfilling experience. So it's important, I've found, that we fully enjoy, recognize, and celebrate what that experience is like. Now, the big challenge I see today is because all the organizations I'm working with are going through one change after another, or maybe it's multiple simultaneous changes. And as they're coming up that hopeful acceptance, just before they get to commitment, they're going through another change. And so they never really take time to celebrate success and celebrate the journey. And that's a big, big thing that I'm now really bringing to the attention of my clients. I had a client as an example that had the best year in the history of the company. And I was going around talking to employees and their emotional response to that just wasn't matching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were worn out. They were burned out. They were tired. I um, mean, the attitude was subdued. And I'm like, what is going on here? And then I realized that leadership had laid on another couple of new challenges. We got to raise the bar on this. So I went back and said, okay, it's fine to raise the bar again, but let's celebrate the exceeding the bar that you just raised a year ago. Right. Celebrating success is something that you just can't assume is going to happen. You have to be purposeful about it. Sure. And it's interesting you bring that up because it gets me thinking about how that process that you're using to uh, have people kind of recognize and celebrate a successful motion is also making whatever new piece that they've worked through become more overt and become part of their awareness consciously of what this company is doing, has done, so that it's a conscious awareness, almost retooling the hierarchical structure they've had before to create that new systemic component that doesn't seem so overwhelming anymore. It just is part of the process. And in that celebration, you've done two things. You've done that personal good job and everybody feeling great. And you've also reinforced those systemic changes that you've made through the work that you've done. Do you think that those two both go hand in hand? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and it's part of the reason why companies that go through the entire change curve process um, many times and allow themselves to celebrate it, what ends up happening is that the company strengthens what I would call its resiliency mm-hmm. and flexibility and adaptability at both the group level as well as the individual Level And that's important because one thing that you're getting at that we also use as a tool is some of the latest uh, neuroscience 
which shows that we literally have like neurological pathways or highways <laughs> in our brain, oh, and, sure. and that's part of our programming. And a lot of our programming, unfortunately, is around feeling really horrible when we fail or picking up and consuming too much negative news in the media right. and therefore not appreciating all the wonderful things that are going on around us. Mm -hmm. And so to create those kind of neurological pathways that says change is okay mm -hmm. <laughs> and I can survive and let's maybe make it even a little bit of a, a fun journey rather than something that I dread you have to be purposeful about that and you have to create right. those new mindsets. And I think getting employees to see how change isn't something that's totally chaotic, it's this adaption and being able to experience that adaption and then reincorporating that new process into whatever systemic or hierarchical structure you have. As it goes in and flows, suddenly it doesn't become so rigid. Like you said, right. change becomes a normal process. A little bit more normal process, I guess, the way to look at it. That's very nice. Well, that's why you'll, you see all the time and you hear stories about people who maybe have been in a steady state. Same job, same situation for a long time. They haven't had too many life disruptions. And then when they have a life disruption, boom. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, they fall down and they fall down pretty hard. They go pretty deep into the abyss. I think it is important to allow ourselves. And sometimes we have to push ourselves out of the comfort zone just so that we can sure. develop that muscle if it hasn't been developed in a while. Right. Well, that's wonderful. And I think the work that you guys are doing at Stop at Nothing is great work. And I can see why you guys have been so successful over the years. I'd like to kind of shift over and talk a little bit about your TEDx talk that was titled When Your Mind Works Against You. Mm -hmm. I was quite interested in that. And I think it's a nice segue from the work that you've been doing in your consulting. I wanted to ask you a little bit about when your mind works against you, who's that you that you're referring to? Mm -hmm. So for me, and I'm sure you might get different answers from different people. Sure. For me, and what I've come to understand about myself and others that I've worked with and talked to about this is the you is your true self, your authentic self, the part of yourself that can observe your mind rather than get caught up in being your mind and being your thoughts. You know, I'll describe to somebody when they look at me and go, what, what the heck does that mean? I'll say, well, have you ever heard a song on the radio? And then all of a sudden it keeps playing over and over again and you, you, because you like the song, but then you get tired of it and you start to say, you know, knock it off. <laughs> I can't get this song out of my head. Well, it's that aware, authentic self that noticed that your mind had gotten hijacked mm -hmm. by playing that song over and over again. Well, if you can apply that, if we can apply that to a negative pattern of thought that we have, a conspiracy theory mm -hmm. that we might have picked up and that we're dwelling on and, and to be able to pull back and go, mm, is that true? <laughs> you know, is that real? Maybe I shouldn't buy that yet <laughs> just because I heard it on, you know, XYZ News or whatever it is. Right. So being able to separate our true self from the reactive mind is a very, very powerful. You know, we use that language of your intentional space, yes. an intentional perspective. Uh, Will Roger, in one of our earlier podcasts, talked about it as the observer. Yes. That the observer arises. Um, Will's a gentleman that we've known for years who's also one of the founders of Burning Man, and he actually lost his memory. And in losing his memory as an adult, 
He then watched it come back over about six to nine months slowly and got to actually experience those tapes returning. And he began to see that in a very intense fashion, how it was changing his behavior, his perceptions, everything changed. And he originally, when he first lost his memory, he felt very happy and in bliss. He was in pain from the accident, but he felt much more blissful. And then as the stories came back and as the memories came back, it all shifted and he started to feel just like you said, that disease, you know, you get caught up in whatever it is that's going and that tape keeps playing. And that gave him an incredible insight into how we need to stop it yes, and how to go to that place of awe in his mind. He calls it going to that place of awe and then having that observer come up and give you a little bit of that distance. That's a wonderful story. And I would imagine that when they did start to come back, at least he was now more empowered to be able to sort of recognize and discern which of those tapes are going to serve me well and which of those tapes are not so that he can reject the ones that are not. And I was so fascinated by it because I know as children we do that, but we don't have the cognitive awareness to understand what's going on where he as an adult did. And to make those choices in those tapes is a fascinating idea. Uh, So I'm quite intrigued with that process as it goes through. And I think you're right. It is that authentic self that our mind sometimes takes us awry. So I I think that's very good. You also talk about in that TED Talk through the kind of conversation about the drunken monkey, you know, your mind when it's out of control. And you talk about negative information and the impact of that. And given in today's world where there is just so much negative information, would you like to talk a little bit about how you see the work that you've done really enlightening this understanding of how we deal with negative information? Well, yes. I mean, when I did the research for the talk, which was um, actually done five or six years ago, I, I went and found that since 1986, up until when I did the talk in 2005, we were exposed to five times more information every day. And then if you compare it back to 100 years ago, (laughs) um, you know, it would be many, many, many multiples above that. And, And then really just started realizing there has not been a time in our human history where we have been exposed to so much information. And A lot of people will say, a lot of brain scientists will say that our brain has not evolved to be able to catch up with that and to process that. And so that then puts us into it, whether we're aware of it or not, a state of overwhelm. And then when we're in a state of overwhelm, that triggers fear. And then the fear starts to cause us to do some things that are not so good Mm -hmm. in terms of how we're using that information, Mm -hmm. such as creating labels for other people creating a us versus them dynamics, looking at things in very black and white terms as opposed to understanding that most decisions and most information has a lot of shades of gray. And and to understand those shades of gray, you have to take the time, you have to dig into the issue, you have to listen to other perspectives and other points of view. So that's my biggest concern for our society right now particularly some of the polarization that we have and inability to get on the same page to solve some of the problems that we have is concerning to me. And I think that's our big challenge as human beings. So what I'm hearing you say is as we're exposed to more and more information, it's overwhelming us and and making it harder for us to focus more deeply on one piece. And the result of that is that we go back to these internal assumptions that we carry inside of us, these 
hierarchies, these systemic, what we might call inequalities, what all these deep-seated components and assumptions of who we are, and we just grab onto that and hang something on that tree and call it a label, and that's what that is, and then we move on to the next piece of information that's coming. So it's done in a very unconscious way. Is that what you see it as? Exactly. No, you describe it very well. I'm very much lined up on that. And the way I describe it in my talk, when I did the research, the, the drunken monkey is, is a metaphor for that reactive mind, the mind that goes into that fearful place. And it really has to do with an old Buddhist notion of the monkey mind, which is bouncing all over the place, highly distracted. And then the drunken part is when it becomes toxic and then it's mm. <laughs> feeding us lots of negative different thoughts. And I had this in the presentation, and a lot of people have shared with me, they felt it was helpful that the drunken monkey or that reactive part of the mind basically craves clarity, simplicity, and certainty. Mm -hmm. Clarity, simplicity, and certainty. So the more overwhelmed we get, the more that that reactive part of our mind wants to say, give me something that I can hold on to with great certainty that is undeniably true in, in my mind. <laughs> right. Rather than facing the fact that maybe there are a lot of things that we don't know or there are a lot of unknowns around it. And I had a, a lecturer a number of years ago that was talking about the rise of fundamentalism in religions, all religions, okay? Mm -hmm. And basically uh, said that it's because there's so much change going on, people are overwhelmed so much information that their mind wants to grab onto something that somebody will tell them is positively, undeniably true. And don't take that away from me. Right. You take it away from me, then I have to face the fear. I happen to feel that facing the fear <laughs> and getting rid of that is more helpful to us. And that was really the basis of my talk was when my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer and I went into a state of fear and I was not paying attention. I was not being aware and intentional. So I started to overanalyze the disease went well beyond what I needed to try to understand it, to try to look for some kind of certainty as to what was going to happen to her. And a very wise oncologist challenged me in that moment and said, you're not getting any more answers than what you have. <laughs> Good. And his words was, you need to get closer to God. You need to develop your courage, your inner strength, so that you can face whatever is going to happen to you, including losing your wife and the mother of your children. Well, since this podcast is really about this art of dynamic competence, and I think you've demonstrated it multiple times in this interview, how would you talk to our listeners about doing their own work? So they don't have a consultant that's come into their business, but they also are in an environment that is changing and it's not always easy. What would you recommend for them based on all of your experiences? So I'm going to put a headline on it, and it's a common, maybe even overused notion, and that is, you know, practicing mindfulness. And, you know, everybody's like, oh, mindfulness, what is that? So, so forth. And, but it's really being aware of the way that you are experiencing life, particularly on an emotional and cognitive level, and how you're interpreting your experiences of life. Number two, taking responsibility, personal responsibility, for the quality of your physical, emotional, and mental life. We cannot control what other people are going to do to us or what circumstances are going to hit us next week. Mm -hmm. But we do have the ability to control how we are responding to that and avoid reacting. That's a fairly common tool that I use all the time that people seem to embrace is Great. the difference between reacting 
to a circumstance versus responding. And you want to respond, you don't want to react. And then um, relying on other people. Brene Brown's work is, to me, has been so helpful because uh, when she did her power of vulnerability Mm -hmm. and basically said that, you know, one of the big challenges that we have is that we're afraid to be vulnerable. We're afraid to admit that we have challenges in our life. And one of the things that my wife and I are, we're very, very transparent. I mean, if if people say, oh, how are the kids? We don't go, oh, they're all great. I will say, well, <laughs> so-and-so's here, and so-and-so's there, and so-and-so's over there. And we've, we talk about that, and, and what I just realized is it just invites, you know, wonderfully deep conversations and connections and relationships. And I do believe that we are pack animals that have survived because we're in community with each other. We used to need to be mm-hmm. in community with each other to fight off predators every day. Now... We need to be in community with each other to provide the kind of emotional support to deal with, you know, all the stuff that's going on in the world and, and the change that we have. So finding those kinds of supportive relationships. Um, practicing meditation is, is really uh, important because to me that's what allows you to have your mind slow down so that you can see these things that we're talking about so that you can be liberated from them. Wonderful. Those are great suggestions. The intrapersonal component to it is where a lot of people are interested and a lot of where the podcast is heading because ultimately to to really address these issues we do have to go to what we call integral you call intrapersonal these levels in which we're beginning to see our connectivity beyond just to people or our work but we begin to see a more spiritual connection a more global universal connection through this process that's right and one thing that I want to add, since it's timely with the COVID and virtual work, you know, a year ago, all of our workshops were in person and we pull people together. We create an environment where they can open up and share their life stories with each other in a vulnerable way, as I was talking about earlier. All that got shut down. We were forced to do it virtually. And we have done probably 30 to 40 virtual workshops, and it's been amazing to me. It's really been quite surprising, um, particularly in the Zoom environment, how much people have opened up with each other in that environment and how it's been godsend for a lot of people because they've been cooped up at home and now they can come together and share their personal stories with other people. So I do feel that at the end of the day, in-person is still going to be probably a slight advantage to it. But I found that having conversations, you know, even like this and the, some of the sharing that, that we're doing here mm-hmm. in this environment is really, really going to open up the opportunity for people to grow and develop as a group. And hopefully sure. people will spend more time talking about those things rather than just turning on the nightly news, which, of course, is developed and programmed to trigger our drunken monkey. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's also what I will share with people is to really just be a very mindful about not just where you're getting your news from, but how much time you're spending on that. And if you can limit it to 30 minutes a day, a reliable news source, and then shut that sucker down, you're going to have all the information you need Mm -hmm. to be on top of what's going on in the world. We don't need to be constantly plugged into that. That's very nice. Well, Ted, it's been wonderful talking with you. What an interesting life you've had and what interesting work you've been doing. Uh, Thank you so much for sharing that with us, and we hope to talk to you sometime in the future. Great. Thank you, Susan. I really appreciate you all reaching out to me. It's so cool to be kind of sharing some of these things with some folks who uh, look at life in a similar way. That's true. Well, have a great day, and we'll talk to you soon. 
Great. Thank you. Well, thanks, Tom, for coming back to talk about TED's talk. Thanks for having me back, Susan. It's fun to talk about a subject that I actually deal with on a day-to-day basis. Well, great. Uh, let's start first, because I, what I want to do is capture what Ted was talking about as the three structural components that he works with and that, how that relates to your work. How have you uh, experienced that in your work? Well, I think what Ted and his company are doing are spot on. I just really like the fact that they really bring out these fundamental building blocks. Uh, they talk about systemic, they talk about interpersonal, and they talk about intrapersonal. We use a different language in our business side of it, which is almost identical to what he's speaking to. When he says systemic, we use the terminology process and systems. When he uses interpersonal, we use management and leadership. And and our mindset is that it's the management and the leadership engaging the people within the process that define the culture. Uh, And then lastly, he talks about interpersonal, which is the people. Absolutely, it's the people and their mindsets and behaviors and how you engage those people, both through the leadership and management and also how the people are engaged in the process. Oh, great. And then Tom, what I wanna do next is take that structure that they're so effective at engaging and overlay a little bit more complexity to it by saying, okay, from what we work on and especially with what I'm working on, We have the ability to look at each one of these structural components that Ted brings up from either an instinctive reactive perspective, an intentional perspective, or an integral perspective. And as we look from those different perspectives, we actually see quite different things. And I'd like to spend some time talking about that because I think it's a nice connection to kind of explain more what we're doing with this umbrella of dynamic competence. Yes, Susan, if you think about it, and we'll take the easy one. It's the one that even, as Ted said, everybody likes to latch back onto is the process and system side. And it's easy because it doesn't have the complexity of the people and the components that that brings. So if you just look at the process, uh, if I'm looking at it from a reactive state of mind, it's just the process that it is. I'm part of the process. The process tells me what to do and I go do it. And that's just the flow. And it actually helps create stability. If done right and the process is good and yields the right outcome, you have a, a good steady flow there. And when you go and shift your perspective and go to intentional, you start to see the system for what it is and what it's actually trying to achieve. And you compare your maps on what you're striving for to what you're actually getting and you're balancing there. You're making sure is the system giving me what I need? And if it's not, I can make tweaks and changes. We can bring in different perspectives. We can ask others what they see. Uh, We can go back and look at our maps or we can look at our processes that we've done in the past. And then we can make those changes to make the system more effective. If I move into the integral mindset, now I can really add some space between myself and the system. I can see what the system is yielding, but then I don't have to then be constrained about this is the only thing that the system can do. What I can then do is say, what other possibilities? What else can I build out of this? Where else can I take this? And what do you think is the impact of this approach, Tom? But what you're doing is is creating versatility. You're creating the adaptability to be able to change. If something isn't right in there, you can adapt to it. And then if you're at the integral mindset, you can actually yield something that no one even thought could be yielded from that system. Agreed. 
And I think that Ted and his colleagues are expecting this from their work. I think what Ted and his company are able to do is see where that person is. It's kind of as if Ted had talked about, they present data to leadership saying, this is where your people are. We've done a good survey. We've talked to a lot of folks. We understand where they are. What Ted is really talking about is where are they in their state of mind? Are they in a reactive, intentional, or integral level? And then from there, you can design your solution. Because if you have a lot of folks who are thinking very reactively to help make that movement occur, especially in change management, you have got to pull folks out of the reactive to the intentional. Now, now people can do change management within the reactive world, but they're relying on others to provide them answers and solutions to move. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. if you put people to the intentional phase, they themselves actually have an easier time making the movement. As Ted said, that as they support the interpersonal, what happens is you find that people begin to take more responsibility, personal responsibility for their roles, leading themselves through change. So the leaders don't have such a burden there as well. So there's a huge benefit as you move people from that reactive phase and into that intentional phase to be able to get them to see taking that personal responsibility. Do you agree? I agree, Susan. They call that their self-awareness program in, in which it helps employees to begin to take personal responsibility uh, in their efforts. And then, as Ted said, it led to that health and wellness component where these are skills that are life skills, they're not just business skills, they're life skills that they can use and not only improve at work, but also improve their personal life. Great. The other piece that came out of the talk, which I really liked, were the stages of change. And I think you noticed as well as I did that it really feels like the stages of grief. Do you want to talk about that? Absolutely. Anybody who's ever been through a change management process knows how unbelievably hard it is to do. And it's taking a group of folks and you're leading them through this path. I mean, it's like a path through the woods and people feel there's danger in the woods and they're very skeptical and they don't want to move forward. So that is perceived as a loss, the loss of how we used to do it, the stability from where we came from. And that loss generates the same exact feelings you talk about when you talk about grief. And you really get into that you know, denial phase and then you get into the resentment, the new depression. Then, then finally you start to have the acceptance. And then after acceptance, then you finally get back into what I like to call the reintegration phase in which you finally get back to going and doing and being productive from where you were, but in a different place with a different mindset. Oh, that's great. And when we jump into and start talking about denial, I really liked something that Ted asks. And he asked his group, are you a healthy skeptic or are you being a cynic? And it's really interesting to me when he said it, because when you ask someone and you're asking them if they're a cynic, what you're really asking them, are you in the reactive instinctual phase or are you a healthy skeptic, meaning you're in that intentional phase, trying to figure things out. And what is the balance between those two? And so he asked the perfect question to get people to wake up to that space that they're in, right? That perspective that they're drawn to at that point in time. Do you agree? Yeah, I agree. Again, it's the balance between the skeptic and the cynic and helping to bring the cynic over to becoming a healthy skeptic is a skill that facilitators have to master because you will always have the cynic. I agree. 
It's not just moving the cynic. When you get into this emotional phase of the change process and begin to move into the acceptance phase, it's hard on everyone, including the business leader. Everyone is feeling this fear and uncertainty. The business leadership must understand this is going to happen. I mean, there is no if, ands, or buts about it. It's going to happen and don't lose faith. I've seen projects happen where we hit one bump in the road and they're like, don't want to do it. We're going back. They don't continue on the trail through the woods. They stop immediately. And I, I have seen that multiple times happen. Yeah, it's, it's what Ted was calling the BMWs, the bitchers, moaners, and whiners. You know, they come up in that period and they just take over. And as he says, their ranks swell during this period. And as you know, those folks are the ones that if you can make the transition, make the biggest difference. Do you agree? Yeah. This fellow named Grimmer, who was from Newton Harrison on the Green Heart Project, uh, he's going to be infamous in our podcast because we keep using him as the example. But it is, it's about the person who's the naysayer. Now, granted, it's great to have folks that are going to transition with you and they're already on board and they're moving and they're going to be great, you know, leverage to, to help continue to move forward. But I will tell you, some of your staunchest allies will be those that, that actually have the change that where they were completely against it. You worked with them, the light bulb came on and they can see the path forward. They become unbelievably strong advocates for you. Absolutely. And then as you go from emotional into acceptance, it's what Ted calls cautious optimism. It's what we all experience as human beings as we go through change. You start to develop new habits, new neural pathways, new ways of responding, but it doesn't go smoothly. It's not linear. You always have times when where you fall back and you have to pick yourself up and move forward again. And that acceptance phase has that the way he describes it, I think is so valuable because it has a way in which it supports us not being perfect, not making these transitions completely. It is an ebb and flow that we have to wander through. Have you found that in your work? Absolutely, Susan. And I think another key component here is this is the time in which leaders need to understand that they're going to have to put a big effort up front because when they do this, they're able to engage their employees, they're able to build them up, but then their employees are able to then move forward with it. So it's not just all the effort of the leader. It's now being transferred to those who need to get it done on a day-to-day -day basis and they start doing it. So then that frees up time for the leader to focus on other things and more back to visioning and driving, but it's going to be a heavy upfront effort. It's going to acquire a lot of attention to ensure that everybody's feeling safe, that they're moving forward, that they're being productive. They're working through those ebbs and flows and they're not getting frustrated. And it's a burden on that leader but now he's able to move forward, pass the ball, and off they go. Right. And of course, that happens at the personal level as well. As we go through this personally, you have to really stay on top of it and maintain your practice and continue to consistently reinforce it during this time so that as you make it through this phase and you have developed those new neural pathways, those new ways of responding, then it becomes much easier. So this is a time that's dangerous that you don't end up making that transition the way you want to. And as he pointed out with BMWs, this is the time you have to work with some leaders on hard talk. Some people aren't moving out of BMWs and the organization's changing. That may not be the place for them anymore. It's a really critical time. And then after you've gone through that time, you get to what Ted calls this commitment phase. And what I liked about the commitment phase and how he was explaining it was this combination of people celebrating that they've done it 
and what we talk about, which is you're reinforcing those paradigms. You're at the personal level, you're building new neural pathways, you're thinking about things differently. And at the organizational level, you're rebuilding your hierarchy. You're creating an entire new system to work under that starts to become, as mom would say, you become unconsciously skilled. And I agree, Susan. And I think another key component is, is as Ted had said, He's seeing more and more organizations go through change after change after change, which should then tell the leadership that we need to build change management within our day to day so that we're preparing our people as new things come up, as new situations arise. Are we giving them the skills, the resource, the training to be able to adapt to those new changes that are coming and make life a little bit easier. It helps in creating flexibility. It helps in creating adaptability, resilience, stamina. Those are the key parts that will be built into your process when you focus on getting change management as part of the day-to-day. That's an interesting point because what I also heard in what Ted was saying is he would have to go back to leaders. So they're in the middle of another big round of change. People are feeling disconnected from it. They're feeling exhausted. And there's two things that can happen, I realize. You can say, look, slow down your change, right? Don't try to do another thing. Or what you're saying is the more intentional approach, which is now we're in a change environment that's continually changing. So let's build some structure intentionally that allows us to not be stuck in one hierarchy, one structure, and reacting to that all the time, and then having to go through a full change process. It just smooths the curves. You're still going to go through that. No matter what, you're going to go through that. But we're like athletes. We're in training. We're becoming conditioned. We're being better at it. We can recognize it quicker. We can respond faster. So as you said, we're going to dampen out the ebbs and flows and the ups and downs. Great. Well, I did want to talk about one thing about his TED Talk, and we will link his TED Talk to our website so everyone can see that as well. One of the things he talked about and he emphasized was this idea that people who are caught up in this drunken monkey, and that comes from the monkey mind that's bouncing around, and then the toxicity of being drunk, that combination, when our mind is taking over us, We really crave clarity, simplicity, and certainty. What did you hear in what Ted was saying there, Tom? Well, first off, Susan, I have to say that I actually had never really thought of the components that are needed to feed the reactive mind. And I think Ted's example of speaking to that it wants clarity, simplicity, and certainty. But then I realized, too, that that's not a negative, that you should be designing systems. You should be designing leadership. You should be designing the adaptability of people to clarity, simplicity, and certainty. People themselves do like to have clarity, simplicity, and certainty. And it works very well when you're in a reactive mindset. It's setting down, you have the focus, you know what you need to go do, you go execute it, and you know what the outcome's gonna be. So it yields all of that. But if you think about it, if you're in a world in which that becomes poorly managed or is used in the wrong context, such as it's becoming a manipulation tactic as opposed to a, an outcome that is favorable for others, that can cause great harm. And so at work, if we aren't intentional about how we build our systems and, and how we manage our people and, and how we focus on the mindsets and behaviors, if we don't do that, the system itself or the process itself will start to degrade and create that 
unclarity become complicated and lessen the certainty of the outcome. So what I hear you saying, Tom, is that when you're working with people who are functioning from reactive, instinctual perspectives, when you're creating work environments for them, you want to make sure that they feel clarity, simplicity, and certainty in what's around them. No matter what's going on in the world, those three things are there. And that as you move into this intentional space, part of what Ted is proposing in the structure that he does and the way he works with people and he gets them to understand these stages of change is he's beginning to create clarity, simplicity, and certainty around the change process. So people have things to hang their hats on that are not just about a clear process here, but it's also on being clear that change is going to be coming in a consistent fashion every three to six months. We're going to have to make some adjustments and you're creating a space that acknowledges the change is coming and acknowledges these four or five steps that he's using to get people to go through that process of change easier. Does that capture what you were trying to say? Exactly. Um, because that actually is your goal. And what he was using those in, in reference to uh, things such as the news coming in or other information that is kind of trying to hijack your thinking and, and where you're going. And it masquerades itself as clarity and simplicity and, and certainty, but it's feeding you an underlying message that doesn't resonate with the people. It sounds right. It feels good. I, I'm hearing it. But in the end, it almost gives me nothing. So what I'm hearing then now is that if you don't provide some feeling of clarity, simplicity, and certainty at whatever perspective you're working from, whether it's reactive or intentional, integral we're not worried about because an, an integral perspective embraces all of that. But in those two, you have to create that component. In the absence of creating that component, you will find it somewhere. And so wherever you find it, as Ted points out, can be very negative. And as you just mentioned, takes you nowhere. You can be getting information that is really way off the mark. It's not accurate. It's whatever, but it's appealing to you. And like we learned in Lucas Mulliman's talk, if it kind of reinforces what you're thinking, you're going to gravitate and make that shift to there because that's giving you clarity, simplicity, and certainty. That's probably the feelings you have as you consider these different guesses around you as you're working through that process. Yeah, I agree. There's an old saying that says in the absence of information, people are going to make it up or find it and they'll take it from anywhere. So in a business, if you're not communicating well, we used to say in the military, the rumor mill will take off and we will invent all types of things to fill the void in. And that's why it's so incumbent upon leadership to be mindful of that. And if they're not providing a good dose of what clarity and simplicity and certainty is and where we're trying to go, and it's for the right reason and it's healthy. I always use the visualization on I'm hungry. If I eat junk food, I feel full. I have solved the problem. But then what do I feel like later on? It's the same thing. Let's give a good, healthy diet to our employees. Let's help them and provide that through our own leadership and understanding them as individuals and developing good systems that they can work in and they can fail without fear of a catastrophic event and all these things we've talked about. That's the whole job of a leader. And that's so interesting because I think Ted captured that very well. And I think his company, Stop at Nothing, is doing a great job with tools that allow for that to happen. I would like to point out that everybody should make sure they listen to that last part of his podcast again, because those 
prescriptions that he offered up to everybody in the absence of a consultant are great anytime, whether you have a consultant or not. Whether it's mindfulness, it's responding and not reacting, that's such a great term, uh, needing to be vulnerable, finding supportive relationships and meditation are all great suggestions to help us through this process of change at whatever level, whether we're leading it or we're part of it as a participant. Yeah, agree. Anytime that we can draw the folks from a reactive thinking mode and help them get to that intentional mindset in which they can kind of see things for themselves and they can be aware and, as you say, not be reactive and build those relationships, then you know you're really helping your folks at work. Well, thanks so much, Tom. It was great chatting with you about this. Yeah, thanks for having me again, Susan. We want to share a heartfelt thanks for all who have joined us for this episode of The Art of Dynamic Competence. We're incredibly grateful that you shared some of your day with us. We know your time is precious, and we hope that we've been able to share some interesting perspectives and helped you gain some insight in how you've used dynamic competence before in your own life and how to find it in new things you're taking on. We've now launched our social media at The Art of Dynamic Competence or AODI Competence on Twitter. So please follow us on your favorite platform. In the meantime, and if you're intrigued with what you've heard, please subscribe to this podcast and please tell colleagues, friends, and family about us. This is Susan Clark for The Art of Dynamic Competence. Thank you so much for listening.